to our chat with the expert. I am Dr. Leanne Williams, Director of the Stanford Center for Precision Mental Health and Wellness. At Stanford, I'm also a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and hold a related leadership role as director of the Precision Medicine Corps at Palo Alto VA. I'm hosting today's chat with the expert. Through this chat, the through this chat series, we are showcasing the leading work of faculty members of my Center for Precision Mental Health and Wellness. The title of today's chat is Science, Precision Medicine and Translational Therapeutics. You will hear how the latest neuroscience insights are being used to develop therapeutics and improve lives for persons experiencing obsessive compulsive disorders. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our expert, Carolyn Rodriguez, MD, PhD. Dr. Rodriguez is a Puerto Rican psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and clinical researcher developing treatments for obsessive compulsive disorder and mapping underlying circuit mechanisms. She is a professor in the Stanford Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and directs Stanford's Translational Therapeutics Lab. Dr. Rodriguez received her Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Harvard University, followed by an MD from Harvard Medical School, MIT, and a PhD in Neuroscience and Genetics from Harvard Medical School. Dr. Rodriguez's landmark clinical trials are pioneering rapid-acting treatments for mental illnesses that include obsessive-convulsive... Let me start that again. Dr. Rodriguez's landmark clinical trials are pioneering rapid-acting treatments for mental illnesses that include obsessive-compulsive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Her work spans novel medicines, neuromodulation therapies, and psychotherapy for these conditions that have been underserved by current treatments. Dr. Rodriguez also serves in many important leadership roles. She is the deputy editor of the American Journal of Psychiatry, a member of the Research Council of the American Psychiatric Association, a member of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation Scientific Council, and a scientific and advisory board member of the International OCD Foundation. Dr. Rodriguez has won several national awards, including the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. Not surprisingly, her work has attracted much intention, including from NPR, PBS, New York Times, ABC News, NBC News, Newsweek, and Time.com. I'm absolutely thrilled to call Dr. Rodriguez a close collaborator and friend. Dr. Rodriguez is an invaluable faculty member of my Center for Precision Mental Health and Wellness and her lab is an important allied lab of the center. I've had the rewarding opportunity to collaborate with Dr. Rodriguez over the past eight years. These projects include a study focusing on understanding the neural mechanisms of ketamine, and I'm glad to be contributing my work on developing a novel circuit taxonomy to Dr. Rodriguez's first in the world, studies of novel therapeutics for OCD, and that span ketamine, nitrous oxide, and soon MDMA. On a personal note, Dr. Rodriguez and I have had some very inspiring scientific journeys together. One memorable journey was in 2019, when we both presented at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and I'm having fond memories of that now. 
So let's let's jump in to our, our chat um, and we can make this more spontaneous and interactive. And perhaps um, Dr. Rodriguez, would you would you be willing to call us by our first names, knowing that we've established our professional names? Certainly, Dr. Williams. I'm happy to call you Lee. <laughs> okay. So Carolyn, could you perhaps tell us a bit more about your research and what you are passionate about? Oh, definitely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me on. I am such an admirer of your work, and I just feel really it's like a dream come true coming to Stanford and getting a chance to work with you and collaborate with you. We know each other from way back, the Career Development Institute, and um, all of your wonderful work uh, mentoring the next generation of scientists. So it's it's really it's really been a delight. Um, so as for mutual fan, yeah, <laughs> I would say you know my my interest. It wasn't until recently that I sort of just realized that in 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 retrospect that um, my interest in in mental illness came at a very early age. Uh, my uncle um, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he would, um, you know, we would go over to my grandmother's house and he would be, you know, talking to me, but he was also talking to somebody, somebody else who mm. wasn't there. And I was always fascinated with how, how could it be that um, he was seeing something that I wasn't seeing. And just very early on, curious about why people's behaviors were different. Um, and how it impacted their, their lives. Um, and so, you know, th throughout my training, I um, became very interested in um, medicine, how the body worked, how the, and, and as a natural extension of that, how the brain works. And psychiatry was incredibly appealing to me in the study of um, human behavior. And as I was doing my rotation, something that really struck me um, was uh, seeing an individual who had to wash his hands um, very, very often because he was having intrusive thoughts of contamination. And to the point where he had to wear gloves out in public. Um, and if he would take off his gloves, you would see that the hands were like just so red and raw. And um, it just, it just really struck me, his, his suffering, his pain, and um, what we could do to, to help him. Um, so that really uh, took me on a trajectory of wanting to understand, as you said, um, the underlying mechanism of um, intrusive thoughts and, 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 and why people are driven to do these com uh, repetitive and compulsive behaviors, um, as well as trying to find uh, what are new new treatments and, and how we can help people. So for example, an obsessive compulsive disorder, there are, um, you know, the, the it affects about 2% of the population. Half of cases start by age 14. So people's trajectories are off um, very early in their lives. And um, about half of people will be helped by first line treatments, which is um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors and um, half, um, uh, uh, the first line treatment is serotonin reuptake inhibitors or cognitive behavioral therapy, um, but the other half will not be helped. And so there are other treatment pathways. And the other, the other thing um, is the, um, the, the, there's a long lag time around two to three months for people to get this 
kind of clinical benefit from these two first-line treatments. Um, and so for me, that, that really started um, you know, a journey of trying to see if we can get people better faster. Um, and that really started with uh, seeing what uh, research was done um, in, in OCD. And there was a, instead of uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, these things like Zoloft and, and sertraline, uh, there was some excitement about drugs that change glutamate, which is the main excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. And um, that paired with some um, animal model studies showing that if you disrupt a protein that's important in glutamate scaffolding um, in an animal model, you get this repetitive grooming behavior. And when you reintroduce that protein, rescuing it, um, they stop grooming. So those two pieces of information led me to a drug called ketamine, uh, which is a drug that was thought to act through glutamate and already had really remarkable antidepressant um, effects. And uh, we conducted the first uh, randomized controlled trial looking at in OCD patients and found that in half of individuals, um, they had, uh, who, who got the ketamine in, in, in infusion, had a cessation of their, their um, intrusive thoughts and that continued to persist um, out to the one week where we measured it long after it had been metabolized. Um, that must so have been that, a, a really um, motivating experience to see that change. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it was amazing at the time for me because um, there had never you know, all, all the glutamate kind of trials had been adding a drug onto an SSRI. And this is the first time our, you know, the patients who enrolled in the study weren't on anything else. Um, and also to see such rapid effects. So within hours to have people say things like, I'm having a vacation uh, from my OCD, it just, it really, um, you know, rocked my world. Uh, you know, this is possible. And then, you know, we really wanted to just kind of see as this like a one-off, um, you know, and, and, and uh, as you know, the importance of replication in trials um, and led to the collaboration with you on this um, NIH-funded project. Right. It's very inspiring how you wanting to, if I use that phrase, of like get the right treatment to the right person earlier, you know, at the right time, rather than that waiting for several months and trial and error and the fact that so many people are not responding from what are the standard treatments. Did you, from those early stories, which also had a big impact hearing them, it sounds like you've thought like, how would the behaviors that are being experienced and causing such dysfunction or like difficulty in functioning in life, how are they then relating to how the brain's functioning and how would you then use that to think about these novel therapeutics, like connecting that experience, brain and therapeutics? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky uh, to be in a time where there is um, neuroimaging and other ways to try and understand how the brain is working. Um, you know, if, for me, it's a really critical to this kind of science and the kind of questions that you're posing and your the center is posing to, um, you know, work interdisciplinary 
methods and, and different modalities to try and understand um, and in this project specifically that we're collaborating on, you know, how, what are the mechanisms for ketamine um, and how do they act clinically? And also how is it acting in the brain? So yeah. is it affecting a circuit um, in the brain? If so, which one? Um, and so it's really helpful to have the tools that your lab is building to be able to kind of parse that out. Um, one circuit that we've talked about and are really interested in, in studying together is cognitive control. So for those patients with OCD, they have this hyperactive loop in the orbitofrontal cortex in the front part of the brain to deeper structures in the, um, in the middle of the brain, the striatum and the thalamus, and then looping back. And so it's thought that patients with OCD don't have this kind of stop signal. Um, and so that's why it's important to interrogate um, this, um, the cognitive control circuit and other, um, you know, personalized um, uh, um, circuits and regions of the brain to see if it's acting on, on that. Um, that's one hypothesis we're testing. And also, could it be that it's, it's actually, it is actually changing levels of glutamate right. or changing inhibitory um, compounds such as GABA. Um, and, uh, you know, is it something having to do with the synchrony? Like does mm -hmm. ketamine, is it important the, the, uh, to keep the nodes interconnected? Is there a disconnection between the circuits? So all of those are unanswered questions that we, we hope to explore. Right. The example you were describing that, that struck you in your training of the, the gentleman needing to keep washing his hands, it really makes very tangible how a circuit like cognitive control relates to behavior if that circuit gets disrupted because we, I guess we kind of take it for granted that we've got circuits that can help us regulate or control our behaviors. And yet when that gets disrupted, it can have such a profound effect on, on our daily function. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all are peppered with, with intrusive thoughts. Um, and, uh, you know, at times it's, it's easier to just dismiss them and right. sometimes it's harder. Um, so what is that? What, yeah. you know, how, how do I'm just, you know, us sitting here, how, how do we control our thoughts? I think that remains unknown. Right. Um, in fact, we don't even know how thoughts are encoded in the brain. So right. it's really important to partner with basic found, foundational and fundamental neuroscience too, to understand the, in, at the right. encoding level. Um, but also, you know, you have, um, I've really enjoyed your talks on depression and, you know, the, the real need there. And, um, you know, as we've talked about before, cognitive control is important in depression too, and that patients can have ruminative thoughts um, and have a lot of difficulty inhibiting those mm -hmm. thoughts, which, you know, can, can impact or impinge and are associated with mood. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, go ahead, <laughs> please go no, ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, was, I was thinking it's interesting that similar treatment trajectories are thought about for OCD and depression, like the SSRIs and ketamine. And it makes sense that there may be some overlapping or common circuit dysfunctions that involve, as you say, different kinds or forms of disruption in this cognitive control process. 
which may express itself as intrusive thoughts or compulsive behaviors on the one hand or the ruminative and other types of difficulty concentrating in depression. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more that, um, you know, and I, and I think that that is um, the beauty of, of your approach, right? Sort of agnostic to what are the different, um, you know, sort of canonical categories? What are those regions in the brain and what are sort of the foundational um, regions where things can go awry? And then um, can we use that as a, as a, as a, as a, as a building tool for, for therapeutics. So coming at it from the patient perspective, but also importantly, looking at it from sort of an agnostic, you know, kind of build, how do we build uh, this up and understand it in a way that, that makes sense for therapeutics? Yeah. If, if we get a chance in our discussion, something to circle back to, which struck me from what you were saying that OCD can have its origins like early in adolescence. I hadn't realized that actually. So maybe we could circle back to that. Uh, yes, there's your... a number, there's a number mm -hmm. of disorders and, and I'm sorry, I know you meant, meant to circle back to it, but also schizophrenia is also right. around that age. And so, you know, as a, as for, for us to circle back to is also, that's when, you know, puberty is coming on right. a lot of hormonal shifts. Um, so, you know, that is a incredibly understudied area. Um, you know, what, what changes in the brain to, to right. go from these like trajectories and shifts. And there's a lot of potential, I think, to understand how these circuits of cognitive control are not only affecting people now, but also how they change over time right. and right. where they go awry. So really looking across the lifespan is important, I think, as well as this kind of agnostic potentially to our current diagnostic categories, but, and also across the lifespan. One, one thing that always strikes me every time I work with you, talk with you, is just how you combine being very creative and rigorous in your research and you really like pushing for answers that are new and making them happen. And this is kind of preface to a big picture question, which is if you could wave a magic wand what would you make happen for translational therapeutics, like for OCD or, or more broadly? Yeah, um, I think it's a great question. I, lo I love these kinds of questions, right? Um, <laughs> it sort of feels like when you're writing a grant where like everything has gone right, everything is possible in that beautiful right. state of grant writing. Um, and what I would say is that, um, that there really is a gap between um, this brilliant basic fundamental neuroscience, um, clinical neuroscience discoveries, um, and then the funding needed to take those ideas to ultimately get to them where we want them, right? An FDA funded right. new indication. I can say in the field of OCD, there hasn't been any new drugs FDA approved uh, since the 1990s. Wow. And what typically can happen is that um, even, if there's a, even if there's a great idea and even if it's like repurposing already an FDA approved um, product, there isn't, um, there isn't currently you know, clear pathways um, within the National Institutes of Health to conduct those kinds of studies without having 
like a mechanism that you're testing mm -hmm. already. But a lot of our uh, mental illnesses don't have, like we're, like what I was saying before, right. how, where is the thought encoded? How do we, we don't know those mm -hmm. handles or what are the best biomarkers to use right now. Um, and, um, and then on the other side, pharmaceutical companies um, are, um, you know, not, not investing in this area as well um, until things are, you know, maybe already like, you know, very, very far, uh, you know, to phase two or phase three. So these sort of like fast fail discovery to try and translate those early discoveries um, has, a, you know, a, a valley um, of, of discovery. And so, you know, that's really where, um, you know, foundations, donors who will really get the clinical mission and the clinical importance of it are really invaluable. So if I had to wave a magic wand, it would be to, um, to get more attention, more eyes, more support on the importance of getting these compounds um, vetted and to a point where they could be um, then, you know, in, in the sort of pharmaceutical pipeline in order to do larger um, studies um, that, that, that companies would feel were de-risked enough to take through the pipeline. Um, I think I've, I've said before, for every 11 compounds being tested in oncology and eight in neurology, only one is being tested in psychiatry. Oh. So there's a big, a big gap. That's a huge gap, isn't it? So it's, and, and such a missed opportunity. Do you, do you have a, what are your thoughts about what those barriers are that are, you know, creating that chasm? Um, so I think it is, um, you know, need for biomarkers. And I think that is where the mission of the center is, is really helpful. So how do we assess change and how do we tell that a drug has worked or not? Um, so having robust, reliable biomarkers that can be an indicator for if the target is reached or not. Um, I think having more of, of those types of, um, handles to study um, uh, translational therapeutics are important. And while we're, you know, while we're developing them, um, you know, testing, testing them in real time. So testing to see how reliable the marker is at the same time as the clinical trial is going on, as opposed to waiting for to have the, the very robust marker, and then you can kind of do the trials. Um, I'm, I, as you can tell from my tone of voice, I want to help people in our lifetime and we need, I so relate we need, to things, we yeah. need things now. Um, so we really do. And I, yeah. I guess it's one, one way I I'm thinking of, um, and some other words for what you're saying is that how do we accelerate? So these advances can happen in parallel. And as you say, in our lifetime, because there's so many, advances in our field in psychiatry that are exciting and I feel like not yet known and potentially not known enough by the general community that there is a lot of opportunity new advances and a need to be have a very united effort to accelerate yes. so Lee, Lee may yes. I may I have another wave at the magic wand please you, I okay. think you get at least three uh, yes. <laughs> 
I don't know. Is this like an Aladdin situation? Like how many I get? Anyway, um, the other I would say is um, venues for uh, collaborative research. So one of the great joys of doing science, so granted there's many frustrations about doing science, but one of the joys is um, being in an environment where you have this like amazing sandbox to play and like great partners to play with and to have that room and space and creativity scientifically to do work together that isn't necessarily always hypothesis um, driven, but is giving you information on how to formulate um, exciting and important new hypotheses. And, you know, I, I really respect the vision of your center and wanting to have partners who are focused in different areas and really creating a space for that work to happen together. It's, um, to me, that's where the most exciting science is. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that feedback. And I, I am always motivated by the interactions, you know, across the collaborators directly in our field and then other fields it's where the spark usually happens and then you know it's very difficult to make advances with as one lab one pi it takes it literally takes a village of you know committed people so can do, I do you want another one? wave third one okay <laughs> third one i would say is support for um for uh junior folks mm-hmm. right folks that are coming in um it is a lot of um tough um environment with the pandemic um a lot of new faculties are joining institutions that they've never been in before mm-hmm. um and just really creating ways um to help those junior folks have as long a runway as possible um, so that they continue to be energized, they continue to to be motivated. Um, You know, a lot of folks have had to stop their research. Um, You know, it's been, you know, not as conducive to to meeting new people and having these kinds of interactions. So I think the more that we can keep people excited and motivated so that they can kind of get to the light at the end of the tunnel where they're at a new institution generating data, you know, getting their thoughts out into the universe, um, you know, just just more more support and time for junior folks. Yeah, so important. So this is now jumping to a slightly more specific question. And I'm sure this is will be on the people who are listening, maybe coming to their mind. Is you said there haven't been new therapeutics for OCD since or approved by FDA by the night since the 1990s. So, what are the current therapeutics for OCD, and how do the new ones get developed? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, there are you know some industry sponsored studies of glutamate modulators, and we're a site on one of those studies. Um, and there's been uh, studies um, that are like more, more like one-offs, like one site has done, you know, a randomized study that looked promising, but it needs to be sort of replicated. Um, uh, there, you know, um, one, one avenue that you had mentioned uh, before is, at least in the OCD community, there's so much interest um, in, in psychotherapy 
psychedelics um, and, and pathogens, ketamine, these kinds of things are sort of new mechanisms of action. Um, and one of the studies that, that uh, we're collaborating on is on MDMA, uh, which is an empathogen that could have, uh, could be a nice window into um, helping to improve um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and, you know, at the same time, it's important, as we've talked about before, to have uh, equipose um, mm -hmm. in terms of could this be helpful? Yes, but if it's not helpful, we would like to know that as soon as possible so that we can um, let people know as opposed to trying uh, some of these things. Um, but again, that involves like thoughtful research design, funding, yeah. um, trying to conduct these studies um, and, and uh, that can be uh, you know, a wonderful opportunity and, and, uh, and a challenge. Yeah, no, we, we, really, we really want to get the message out about there's exciting advances and they, they really need support. It, from what you're seeing about the, you know, main, the new therapeutics, they're, they're coming along the pipeline, um, but they may not be right for everybody. So that's, to me, that's a point that can be lost when there's excitement or, about a new therapeutic. Absolutely, yep. And because uh, this, the, you know, we want to make a difference and there's many people who are themselves, their families, they're, they're desperate for, for new solutions. But when we hear about a new therapeutic, very often it's a, seen as a, this is a one size fits all potentially for a particular disorder or illness. So what, what are your thoughts around how do we think about that as being maybe more personalized or? suited yeah. to individuals. Absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? Which is, as a clinician, it would be wonderful to apply a test or have a marker or something in hand that I can use in the office to um, try and uh, determine whether, which type of first-line treatment would be helpful. So is, again, 50% of people are helped. So is it better to start with a a serotonin reuptake inhibitor? Is it better to start with cognitive behavioral therapy? And where are those um, markers or indicators to help you make the difference? And even more uh, would be which of the medications would be, would be helpful. Right. And so the, you know, I, I, again, very much admire, um, you know, the, the center and, and, and your lab's work on trying to you know, be able to have those real world, uh, low cost uh, ways of determining this. Do you, is your sense that from your, when you're translating the findings to your clinical work, is your sense that it also is potentially helpful for the patients and families to have the test that would say, or the markers, the biomarkers, the tests available to say this therapy might work for you, or there's evidence from the test it might work as a form of uh, like an action plan or a treatment journey that makes it tangible and say, we have this indication from the test it may be useful to try this therapy. And then it's an action plan, so to speak, or a patient oh, journey that might be more familiar to people in other areas of medicine. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, personalized approaches in cancer, for example, for chemotherapy are really important. And, and I absolutely a big fan of collaborative decision making and thinking about the options. Um, you know, one, one thing that, that we ask patients in terms of um, SSRIs is any family members, um, you know, with a condition, what have they tried in the past? And you can mm. kind of, um, you know, if there's a family member who's responded well to Lexapro or um, escitalopram um, or um, paroxetine, um, you know, then, then you want to know that so that, you know, the person has all the information. If you have this family member um, that has been helped with it, then we might want to, we want to start there. That's really interesting. So would you, would you think of that as the mechanisms for the therapies being specific to the individual potentially or subgroups of people? You know, I, I think the jury is out at least for, for, for OCD. I think that's where the need is to try and try and understand those, those deeper questions. So speaking of deeper questions, what would be your next dream project? I know you have a really exciting one for MDMA coming up, but maybe even beyond that one. Yeah, I, you know, um, one of the projects that we're doing now also in collaboration with you is um, uh, sponsored with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and trying to look at um, this idea of like cognitive control, but coming at it from suicidality. So people have these intrusive um, suicidal thoughts. And in the study were looking at half, half, 200 individuals, half that have had a past history of, su of a suicidal behavior and half who've not, and trying to see if we could um, remotely administer these cognitive um, batteries mm -hmm. so that we can tell what, you know, kind of the predictive part piece that we were talking about, like who might, depending on their cognitive control level, go on to have a suicide um, uh, uh, behavior and who doesn't, who, so what, are, what is a differentiating factor? And if we could make a dent in doing these kind of studies remotely, right? Um, I think that would be to me really exciting um, to, to do as many studies as we can that reach as many people yeah. in rural settings, um, that can have this dual function of trying to understand how do we reach um, people remotely so they don't have to be going somewhere else? Mm -hmm. um, how do we at the same time educate them? Because we're providing mm -hmm. you know, suicide resources and, and plans and, and suicide safety plans for them. Um, and you know, so, so that, that to me, that's the dream, right? Like yeah. doing the science, doing outreach, helping people get connected to care and trying to do things as remotely and as far reaching as possible. Mm -hmm. And literally life-changing. And it highlights um, to me an, another area that may not be immediately apparent you know, across the, the general community about just how important this concept of cognitive control or cognitive processing is because I, you know, the suicidal thoughts, intrusive thoughts, and then making the decision to act on them, I think is really confronting, understandably, um, to everybody. And to try and understand like, why might it be that those thoughts are intrusive and what does make the difference 
in preventing the action. And that's where thinking about circuits like cognitive control or how do you how do you even understand them can make such a difference, but may not be naturally what is thought of as being the way to make a difference. So I, I'm wondering if you if you have uh, ideas just to expand on that a little more. Like I'm aware of evidence for depression that is, you know, what wouldn't normally be thought of is depression in up to one third of people goes hand in hand with difficulties in decision-making or inhibiting thoughts, as we were talking about before. Sometimes a lot of problems concentrating and that profile can make it even harder to manage. Like if it feels like, you know, I can't actually see a reason to live. Having those already, those challenges may make it easier to have the intrusive suicidal thought. So for OCD, is it a potentially a similar process or are you thinking more broadly trans, trans, trans diagnostically? Yeah. Well, we're, we're collecting that information as well. Um, and, and I think uh, to circle back to the, you know, the, what we had talked about before, I do, I do, my hypothesis is that, that there are these like foundational and underlying structures and that um, the manifestation of them outward, right, with symptoms of different varieties, like it can look different, but there's certain, there's certain features of, you know, groups of disorders that seem, that seem to have the same kind of, um, you know, perseverative thoughts, right. thoughts that can't be, can't be uh, controlled. And if there's a way to, to see what that is, see if, see its predictive value, see how it acts on the pathology, it, it would be, you know, uh, you know, a, a way to open new therapeutics that's targeting not just the the grouping of the symptoms, but at, at those that sort of fundamental or foundational brain level. Right. And is your sense that we are at the point in knowing about the brain and behavior and those kind of experiences that we really are able to start to explain those connections and make them available for therapy? And what I'm getting at is, you know, we've, we've for many years had a reasonable understanding of the structure of the brain, like anatomically, the basis of neurology. But now, like thanks to, say, Human Connectome Project, we're kind of mapping the functional connections of the brain as well. How is it actually functioning and processing information, regulating our emotions, giving us a you know, sense of our daily experience, our memories? It's like... So it's the functional operations of the brain, so to speak, and that give us that uh, experience day by day, moment by moment, and then produce our behaviors or our behaviors influence it. Do you feel like that those breakthroughs in understanding the functioning of the brain are giving us more traction mm -hmm. for psychiatry? Yeah, I, actually, your question made me think of, you, you, do you remember that moment where like Watson and Crick discovered the DNA 
And like, it was like, we're going to cure everything. And then it's sort of like, wait a second, we have to like figure out what each of these, what do they mean? The function? It's not enough mm-hmm. to know what the, what the map is. We also have right. to know in what proportions. And then there's like, you know, the exon, exo- um, the, the, like other parts of the DNA right. that inhibit um, and silence parts of the, um, of the proteins from being expressed. So it sort of right. feels like that, which is like, you know, we know some parts of the puzzle, which allow us then I would say conservatively to take the next step, which mm-hmm. is how does, how does, how do structure and function go together? Right. Um, and so there's the promise of, of, um, you know, that of, of unraveling, you know, the, the, the key secrets. Um, but to me, what's mo- more exciting is the next step, which is like, like, how do we un how do we un- uncover and uncode what these things mean uh, together? Yes. Um, yes. No, I, I absolutely relate to the excitement around that. I, one of my questions gonna, was going to be, why is the, is the work in this field so hard? But now we're on such a positive um, series of thoughts. I don't know if you want to go back to that question or we move ahead to another one. Um, maybe we could reframe it because you you touched before on what it would take or ideally what it would take when you wave your three magic wands to make it all possible is there perhaps there's something you wanted to add to that or like are there any more even like on the ground kind of challenges that Mm -hmm. having a center that attracts funding for your work could make a difference yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think uh, certainly part of it is, you know, is support, um, having the right environment, um, and also just, um, you know, like frame, frame shift um, the, the incentives and excitement, right? Um, so, you know, what, uh, you know, again, the challenges are all around us. Um, but really tapping into that, that excitement of discovery um, and, um, you know, the fun of being part of something that's larger that you can't just do by yourself and, and the cross-fertilization of yeah. it. Um, so I think maybe I answer that as a positive. Right. No, <laughs> Still, I love that. Well, you always convey It's hard to get excitement. me down, Lee. <laughs> it really, it really is. I can attest to that. You're, you're always... Um, generate the excitement for the work as well in addition to it being very rigorous and I think that is a very special set of skills and and qualities do is there any uh, finding that's got you especially excited at the moment or set of findings I uh, well we, we just finished our our ketamine study and we have unblinded it so I'm going through the data so it's okay. always fun to have data, but I can't say just yet. So stay okay. tuned. We'll stay have tuned a second chat we're, and, what and we're, what spotlight we're finding. the findings. Um, and just early data on the nitrous oxide and OCD, which is really interesting. Um, but again, I think, you know, stay tuned. So I think okay. what's exciting me is just, um, you know, uh, that, that, that patients are willing to, um, you know, we are in a global pandemic right. still. Uh, right. The patients are willing to take a leap of, of faith with us, um, continue to help us crack the code, 
um, and um, are, are also as equally interested in the science and contributing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately we can't thank them, uh, you know, individually or publicly, everything has to remain confidential. And yet those are, those are people who are really, um, you know, making it possible to understand right. more about the brain. Right. Yeah, I, I really, that really impacts me as well, what you're highlighting there. So thinking of it from the patient perspective and, and families, what do you think is needed to get the new therapies into practice? Um, well, I think, you know, just taking a step back, this moment uh, in, in, in our, within the pandemic was highlighted just the tremendous need for mental health that was there before yeah. and post pandemic, how much even more, um, you know, help is needed uh, for, for individuals. So I would say more than ever, we want, you know, just campaigns for um, trying to get people to, to connected to health and not let, um, you know, uh, um, you know, personal, uh, you know, feelings about, about, you know, stigma or, mm -hmm. or other barriers um, to get into care. Um, and I think messaging around that is really important, like really, um, you know, I like to tell patients, like if you, um, you know, if your, if your uncle had a, had a heart attack, you wouldn't say like, oh, it's all, it's all, you know, in your head or, or right. like you, the assumption would be that you would go to a doctor and you right. would get care. Um, and so why do we think any differently about mental illness? Um, so a lot of and, um, um, blame in like our assumption that it's some perhaps a character flaw or weakness, you should just try harder. Those themes are still yeah. there. And I, I, I think changing the, the, the way we approach it, um, normalizing it, um, getting, getting the word out is one, one, one important way. Um, I would say also like increasing funding for mm -hmm. schools, um, also to have more counselors um, and resources available for mental right. health. So getting mental health into the community um, and more at point of contact. There's a lot of cool research um, of, um, you know, mental health in, in um, like religious settings, um, schools, um, venues where, where people are in the communities, right? right? Um, and I think, you know, part of that is really exciting in terms of like scaling. And I know scaling is something that is near and dear to your heart, mm -hmm. like how, not just what is happening, but how do we, how do we scale it and how yes. do we get it to people? Yeah. And you, you're a great advocate for outreach. It, it strikes me uh, when, we when you think about schools, that your point about how do we, you know, make this part of the almost education process of learning about mental health and how does your brain work, we do take it for granted that we learn about other aspects of navigating life, like road safety or you know, look left and right when you're crossing the road, but we yeah. we don't yet 
as we're growing up have a way of saying, look, these, these are ways that your brain works and everyone has a different configuration of their brain and what you think about and what you do will interact as a way of potentially building coping strategies because you know how your individual brain is wired to start with and knowing that it can change. It, it strikes me that could be potentially useful for young people just to have that sense of themselves from that perspective. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's increasingly schools are including a social and emotional development component, which I think is really critical. Um, and at the same time, the, the, the counselors and uh, are just overwhelmed, right? There's, yeah. there's just a lot going on for young people. Um, and, uh, you know, we need, as a, as a field, we need to help meet that capacity and get creative about ways to, um, to reach people. Yeah. And your point about funding, I think, can't be overemphasized because the numbers that you cited before that are so staggering, the number of compounds that make it through to being used for other areas of medicine how small it is by comparison in psychiatry and how small is the funding as well, you know, or how much less is the funding proportionally. So it, there's, a, there's a lot that could be done to really accelerate, including the outreach. So, so maybe we should take a long view now um, with the, the last couple of related questions is what are your thoughts about opportunities looking forward like what would be your hope for the future of our field for the next generation in our field you know you've touched on early career investigators and then what do you think therapeutics for OCD and the other areas that you you are expert in might look like in 20 years or even beyond that um this is a great question. Again, I love these questions. So, you know, we are at Stanford, Silicon Valley. Um, there's a lot of hope for um, technology and ways of, um, you know, at higher levels and with artificial intelligence, um, being able to look at large data. Um, and I know you have, you know, published extensively and given lots of talks on big data. So I'm actually might I, I think you you're probably better 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 uh, equipped to to uh, to opine on on this. But to me, um, you know, the brain, like as opposed to the kidney, right, where we could maybe on the hands, two hands, say the the types of cells that are there. The neuron is, is yeah a whole other level them, of complexity, yeah. and um, you know, in 20 years, I'm optimistic that infusing and automating um, the things that we're doing sort of more, more manually now and at larger uh, capacity, um, we'll be able to understand more, not just you know, point A to point B, but what are the different interrelationships? And can we um, decrease the temporal time scale? Like, can we get more information instead of 13 minute chunks with magnetic resonance spectroscopy, right. can you do MRS like looking at different um, uh, neurotransmitter 
but at faster scale, like mm -hmm. could it be at the scale of an EEG? Um, we are having thoughts all the time. Yes. So how do we, how do we read that? How do we, we, we don't currently have the tools to, to sort of decrease that in a way um, for, for at the molecular level. So working with our partners who do uh, positron emission tomography, labeling specific cells and being able to do that neuroimaging in real time, partnering with um, neurosurgeons, partnering with neurologists who are having um, in, implanted devices that can look at, again, shorter time scales and, and really thinking about very closely how the brain is changing over shorter periods of time and in, in vivo, I think is where, and, and with the artificial intelligence to be able to take in that level of, of information, I think would, will be the future. Right. Timing is everything when it comes to the brain, I think. Yeah. Really fast timescales. Do you, in thinking of that, um, like making the technology, you know, real time, thinking about the big data, could you imagine that in that, maybe not in the 20 years timescale, but we do want to make that happen, that we could use that information to get closer to personalizing the therapeutic selection or at least informing that process if we had more real-time data available to us and made use of machine learning and AI to actually synthesize that information also more in real-time, then we'd, it'd be more like tools available to the clinician. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there, there's a burgeoning literature of um, closed loop systems and like different hardware to sort of like detect a pattern and then to be able to stimulate it um, in real time and having, you know, the, the, the foundational work that you're doing, Lee, to say like, well, what should we be looking for, right? Like, what is, what are we detecting um, is key to then being able to harness those technological advancements to then take it to the next level. Right. I feel like I could talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, I love this uh, discussion and all our discussions. Um, I'm respectful of your time. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you have a, would, like, would you like to kind of give our listeners a, a summary wrap up? I think maybe what you would like to see happen, any, any thoughts to share? Yeah, well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for, for um, having me. I really enjoyed the conversation and just an opportunity to, um, you know, within our, within our busy days, just really yes. reflect on the future. And um, that's something that I think is important, again, for like junior faculty and folks who are entering the field, taking time to, um, you know, within your schedule to reflect and think about the future and really strategize what things energize you, um, what things are important for patients and really centering uh, patient experience and everything that we're, we're doing um, and making time to speak to really thoughtful leaders in the fields like yourself, you know, it's, um, it's really refreshing um, and motivating to the, to the work that we do every day. Yeah, well, thank you so much for, for sharing your time. Uh, I've learned a, so much as always, like, just in hearing 
from from when you first thought about these questions when you were much you know when you were growing up and thinking about the impact all the way through to now you're pioneering this in our field it's fantastic and we will look forward to part two when we will hear about the findings from the studies that you're analyzing now can't can't wait to hear those as well but thank you stay tuned yes (laughs) thank you so much